Hello and welcome back once again to the Coffee and Heroes podcast time for our weekly review show. So anyone who's been following the last couple of weeks knows that we're now doing a slightly delayed review show. Just give you guys a chance to catch up and, uh, well, myself and Keith, a chance to catch up as well. Your host is always Alan, owner and operator of Coffee and Heroes in Belfast, joined by Mr. Keith Miller. Good evening, sir. How are you? I am doing all right on this uh, on this fine evening. Um we're uh, we're not long past the the longest day, so it's uh, it's it's long nights. But uh, depressingly, we now start the uh, the downward spiral towards uh, the short uh, the short days of winter. Sigh. Are you saying <laughs> are you saying that winter is coming? Is that what you're saying? Oh, I guess I guess so. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> uh, I don't know if that's still uh, if that's still modern and uh, and fashionable. Uh, but indeed well neither of us are modern nor fashionable so i think we're all good in that uh, scenario so we'll just wish a happy belated birthday to our usual uh, recording buddy roddy it was his birthday this week this is really just our way of testing if you're actually listening or not roddy we'll uh we'll hear if you you hear these birthday wishes <laughs> yes well may he continue to keep winning it winging it for many many more years and uh we've got a previews pod coming up so you'll maybe be hearing his dulcet tones soon if he deigns to join us yeah i think so i think so i mean as ever i mean before we jump into reviews and so forth we've got the usual sort of chit chat and back and forth just about bits and pieces that caught around the last week and and you mentioned there uh, a previews pod coming soon and an absolutely amazing miracle this month somehow the dc solicitations have come out before marvel what is going on there uh, usually DC are at least a week behind Marvel at the moment, but they seem to be getting their their act together. There's some some good looking stuff coming out for September, which is what the next previews one will be. They're also bringing DC Connect back to print, which I'm very happy about as a as a bricks and mortar story. You know, I would rather yeah. have that previews book in the corner, uh, along with the Marvel book, along with the the indie book as well, for people to have a look through. Apparently, pre orders were slightly down on where they were. Uh, I think they tried to, I mean, it's it's always going to be an interesting scale that they work on, given what the last year has contained and, and everything else. But from what I understand, pre-orders are lower than they expected, and they think some of that is to do with it being digital only. Interesting. I mean, obviously, I think, it, it's, as you say, it's a welcome it's a welcome return to, to print for that. And it certainly makes things easier for us uh, as, as reviewers, uh, or, or sort of previewers anyway. Um so yeah, I'm glad to I'm glad to see they have caught themselves on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's uh, I I just much prefer having the books to flick through, you know, waiting for the new DC Connect, you know, and and having to listen to Stephen whinge and complain at how long it's taken to go up is uh, you know it takes its toll after a while. But you know we love you anyway, Stephen. Uh, but I mean, <laughs> talking about DC and and comics and so forth, uh, a, a series we've been very much enjoying, Batman. Yeah. Animated Adventures continue. It's now entered its second volume, introduced the Court of Owls. We talked uh, quite a lot about it on the last podcast. Really good issue. Unfortunately, the series artist on that, Ty Templeton, is going to be departing the series. Uh, it's it's unfortunately due to some health issues as well, which is is horrible to hear in, in general. I mean, it's, it's obviously a blow that he'll be leaving the series, but even more of a blow for it being for such a serious reason. You know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, recently... Uh, we had the the death of John Paul Leon, and I believe he was battling a a diagnosis, and he kept it secret. He didn't let anybody know, and then there was a lot of sort of online pileup for why was Creature of the Night not being finished, and this and that, and sort of jokes and bits and pieces being made when obviously it was something serious behind the scenes. So maybe that's what uh, Ty Templeton's trying to hoard off. Maybe just look for support rather than, you know, the online community is not always the most supportive of things when it comes to these things and delays and so forth. 
So yeah, um, I mean, he's uh, he has he has said that uh, he's not looking for sympathy. My experience of chemo and radiation so far has been quite tolerable. I'm fairly confident I'm coming out the other side of this alive and hopping. Uh, later this year, he adds in his blog post. Uh, but I wanted folks informed so they don't. Uh, wonder why I got super lazy this year and just stopped drawing Batman Adventures Continue uh, and why I missed a couple of deadlines late last year too. He ends by thanking his collaborators for picking up his artistic slack along with Paul Dini and uh, Alan, Alan Burnett who wrote such wonderful scripts that I pulled myself out of bed and drew them in anyway. So, I mean, from us at the Coffee and Heroes podcast, uh, all we can do is, is, is wish him well, wish him all the best and, uh, and a, a complete and swift recovery. Yeah, 100%. Get well soon. We'll look forward to enjoying more of your work down the line when you when you beat this. So we're out here rooting for you anyway. Uh, yeah, I mean, looking at sort of DC, Marvel, different uh, previews and so forth, the things coming up. It'll be interesting once the previews drop for Marvel, they're going to be starting to work towards new creative teams for some of their top titles. We've already had announcements recently with Hulk, with, you know, Donny Cates and, and uh, Ryan Otley taking over that one. And last week... We saw the last issue of Venom from Kits and Stegman. That was quite a momentous moment, issue 200. Though there are a few murmurings that it should be more than 200, which is yeah. interesting. They didn't include a miniseries, apparently. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I, haven't, I, haven't, uh, I haven't read it myself <laughs> yet, uh, but it is, uh, it is on the pile and uh, will, be, will be read this evening, perhaps. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's a, a long old run for, uh, for Kits and Stegman. But, uh, you know, they think it's time to say goodbye, so... So goodbye it is, and, and I'll be interested to see what they work on next. Well, they're continuing to tease it on Twitter, what they're working on next. They're keeps, they keep sending back and forth these sort of blurry sort of uh, images, and it says transmission received, and uh, Donnie put up a thing today saying kids love chains, so of course we all think it's going to be something to do with the Spawn, expanding Spawn universe at the moment, <laughs> but there is no better promoter of his own work than Donny Cates. The man is a master at it, so keep your eyes peeled to social media for more and more announcements there, I'm sure. Uh, you'd mentioned there we've got the previews pod. That'll be coming up soon. Hopefully next week we'll be getting the new previews book so we can get forward with that. We may or may not have a couple of interesting little creator interviews lined up as well, so keep an eye, as ever, on the, the podcast feed and also on the, the store social media. We'll certainly reveal more news as we're ready to do so. I mean, it would be fairly cruel for you to say we may or may not. I mean, I think it's fair to say that we may, uh, because announcing that we may not have more creator interviews would be would be cruel and unusual. Well, I'm more than happy to be cruel and unusual for. for <laughs> I'll be the bad cop to your good cop here in this one. I will. I will use those words to describe you in future. I always cruel say may unusual. or may not because there's been a couple of creator interviews along the way that you know. You know, anyone we've talked to has been amazing. There's been the odd ones falling through at the very last minute. And it's been slightly heartbreaking for myself. So I don't want to 100% to commit to May. We we have dates etched in, shall we say. Let's hope we uh, we can follow through on them. But yeah, so just to keep an eye out for those. There's, there's going to be some really good ones coming up there. Uh, moving on to sort of TV and movie news. You'll be delighted to know I finally got caught up on Loki. Uh, we're recording this obviously on the Tuesday evening. And it appears now that Wednesday is now Marvel Day. Yeah, it, uh, I mean, obviously, with uh, certainly the ones I've been watching, Mando, uh, WandaVision, and uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier, uh, Friday was the release date, and it was quite it was quite comfortable, worked for us all, but uh, Marvel Studios' Loki has had the biggest launch of any show on, a Disney, on the Disney Plus service, and 
I think that's the reason that they're they're, they're drawing the conclusion that Wednesday is, is a better day to, to launch these things. So from now on, Disney have opted to launch series on Wednesday rather than Friday. Um, seems to have paid off so far, changed it up, and, uh, and as I say, all its original series, whether those be original scripted, unscripted, or animated series are all going to drop on, on Wednesday henceforth. Um, I know you're not a big fan of that. I was just used to the Friday the, the, the Friday release schedule. Wednesday night for me is usually when I'll tuck in the my new comic books, obviously be a new Ooh. comic book day. I like the synchronicity of new comic book day, big comic book event, you know, I suppose, being released in TV land as well. But I don't know, I was just used to that Friday. I, I enjoyed that Friday feeling, start of the weekend. And of course, you left out the Mighty Ducks Game Changers, which also launched on a Friday, Keith. Come on. Of course, of course, yes, that is that is true, and uh, I mean, at the end of the day, that's it, it is. You can watch it whenever you want, so you can save it for Friday if you like. Well, this is very true. You know, I I'm not involved in any group chats involving Disney Plus speculation ever since I slowly came to WandaVision, so you know, I can avoid spoilers easily enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, in those particular chats, we do have a we do have a safety a safety mechanism to ensure that uh, that nobody starts chatting before everybody's watched it so oh really as long as we can pull you in if you want as long as those rules are established of course uh but yeah no i mean look i'm i'm enjoying it so far we watched the two issues back to back there on uh sunday night it is very very wordy there's a lot of world building going on there's a lot of explanations going on for a lot of things admittedly i did think the problem is anytime you throw time travel into things there's inevitably going to be other questions so of course the one thing I had a slight problem with, and you can probably correct me in this, I'm probably going to be talking nonsense, but the one thing I had a slight problem with is the whole idea of the timekeepers and what is meant to happen, right? So mm-hmm. Loki jumps through his wormhole, having taken the Tesseract, and within mm-hmm. 30 seconds when he's out in the desert, the TVA are on him. But the Avengers were able to jump through time as much as they wanted, and they just threw away a, a little line away of, well, that's what was meant to happen. That was a little bit of a cop-out, I thought. Ah, well, you're always going to need a cop-out with time travel. Always. Unless it's Marjorie Finnegan, of course, you know. Well, exactly. Well, she has her her cop-out already. Um, But uh, you're always always going to need that. Um, And uh, and as well, I mean, the the, the cop-out there is that they already knew that the Avengers were going to, that Cap was going to go back and put everything back the way it should be. Um... Yeah, apart from him obviously staying back in time, but obviously that didn't create an alternative time. Yeah, it's a whole, it's a whole thing. But uh, yeah, but of course I, that I really... that all relies, of course, on the fact that they're going to succeed, though. You know what I mean? If they don't succeed and then those branches go off, then you know. Believe me, if we get into this conversation, we'll be at it all night. So <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna clip that particular timeline right there. That's probably a smart <laughs> move. We don't want to get into any what is it timey wimey nonsense. Yes, yes. You know, so right. I think we'll avoid that. But yes, the show is a lot of fun. I mean the. The characters are fantastic. I mean, I think Owen Wilson as uh, Mobius is just having the time of his life there. His laid back style is really works really great with the sort of almost childlike um, the childlike behavior. I think of Loki. He's always talking. He's always wanting to be accepted. He's wanting to be liked. You know, there's a great scene where they're walking down the hallway and Loki's just going from like side to side over his shoulder trying to talk to him, and he's really laid back. So, <laughs> I know I'm very much enjoying it so far. It's uh, it's it's a good character piece. So I'm more than happy about that. Um, what else have we got this week? We saw that it looks like they're going to be filming the Mad Max Fury Road prequel, Furiosa. It would appear that Anya Taylor-Joy is taking over the titular role uh, away from Charlize Theron. And it's going to be George Miller directing again. So I 
absolutely loved Mad Max Fury Road. It was for me the year it came out. I think it was twenty fifteen. It was the uh-huh. best movie of that year. Absolutely adored yeah. it. I mean, I hadn't I hadn't realized even that there was going to be a prequel. Um, but uh, I think Anya Taylor Joy, who you may best know as Beth Harmon from The Queen's Gambit, which was a fantastic watch over lockdown, I have to say. I think she was also in Peaky Blinders um, as well, and a few other split. Split's split. the main thing I know her from. She was in Split, and then she was in a dark horror movie called The Witch, which is where she got a lot of notoriety. But she's also going to be joined by Thor himself as well. Chris Hemsworth's going to be in the prequel. Uh, Very interesting. And also uh, Watchmen alumni Yaya Abdul-Mateen II is going to be in it as well, uh, who was in the Watchmen TV show. So, yeah, I mean, having George Miller in, in, uh, involved in this is, is paramount of importance, I think. The original Mad Max movies I enjoy, but Fury Road I just thought was absolutely outstanding. Uh, so much fun, so it was. Uh, what else have we got? You were quiet for a, a minute or two before we started recording. I believe you were catching up on your, uh, your, your Star Treks. Yeah, a little, little behind. The, uh, they released the uh, trailer for Season 2 of Star Trek Picard last week on Captain Picard Day. Um, so that's uh, mooted for the show's return in early 2022. And uh, it looks like the second and third seasons are maybe being shot simultaneously. But uh, yeah, a lot of, lot, of, lot of things confirmed regarding various supporting characters uh, from the first season. Uh Captain Rios, uh, played by Santiago Cabrera's back, uh, Orla Brady's Romulus housekeeper, uh, Loris, but um, a variety of other uh, individuals uh, appearing, uh, not least Jerry Ryan as Seven of Nine, and the triumphant return of John DeLancey as Q, uh, which was which was really lovely to really lovely to see. So his his dialogue sort of suggests throwback to a Next Generation episode called tapestry as it explores the the end of the road not taken um so it looks like time is broken and uh, we're, we're maybe going to have another uh, wibbly wobbly timey wimey story there in uh, in star trek picard <laughs> looking forward to that one yeah and then we also had this week there was some uh pictures released well, not really pictures released i suppose more merchandise released i suppose in a in a way from uh, the set of Thor Love and Thunder, there was some of the crew's t-shirts were uh, sent out into the Twitterverse, which gave everyone a slightly blurry look, shall we say. Uh, Natalie Portman's Jane Foster in full Thor getup. A uh, rather cool little po- uh, little picture. You have Thor in the center, Jane Foster Thor to the left, or to his right, depending on how you look at it. And then Valkyrie in there as well. So this must have you very excited. I mean, we are entering prime Jason Aaron territory here. Oh yeah, big style, big style, and uh, yeah. So 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 seeing, you know, Jane Foster take up the Thor mantle, and uh, again, we'll be seeing a lot of the Guardians of the Galaxy stuff. But yeah, this is this is great, and I mean, Valkyrie uh, is featuring in uh, in the current Mighty Valkyries uh, comic book. Uh, you know, so that's a crossover character from the movies to the comic book, um, the, the the Tessa Thompson version of, of Valkyrie. So that'll be, uh, and she's just got herself a name as well in the comic book. So that's yeah, interesting to see what they build with, with those those three characters. They're really looking forward to it. Take away Tita, can't 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 go wrong with, with with him. Yeah, I think they have our full trust at this point. Really, really enjoyed Ragnarok. Dark World. I'm not a huge fan of it. It does have some decent moments in it, but I think it's definitely the weaker. I absolutely loved the first Thor when it came out. I thought just the fusion of you know 
these sort of Shakespeare-esque characters with the modern world was just absolutely brilliant. And having Kenneth Branagh direct it was just a masterstroke. Uh, I absolutely love the first Thor. I actually think, along with Cap, it's probably my favorite origin movie. Like I love Thor. I think it, I think it's fantastic. Yeah, I think it's a great. It's a great. Uh, yeah, I, I totally agree. Totally agree. And then one last thing, which uh, we'll not talk too much on because we're both refusing to watch it because we have self-control, but a new uh, Suicide Squad trailer hit today as well. The movie is not far away, though, so I am more than happy to wait. I've heard some good impressions from it. I've, uh, people are saying that it looks fantastic. If that's the case, I'm looking forward to seeing that fantastic stuff up on the big screen. It's due for August 6th, so we're only sort of six weeks away at this point, so happy enough to wait. So... Yeah, that is pretty much going to do it for the news side of things. So let's get to some comics and some reviewing. So, yeah, again, we're going to be looking at the releases from the 9th of June. So, again, this will be spoiler-filled from the start. So timestamps are below, so you can always skip past certain titles if you're not quite up to date just yet. But, uh, yeah, for this week, we have uh, our usual totals in the 20s anyway. Uh, for me, this was a big week as every week, uh, 28 titles in total, which was 10 DC, 3 Marvel, bringing up the rear. I'm really, sh- uh, my Marvel numbers at the moment are just disgraceful, Keith. Uh, I know, I'm very disappointed, aren't you? Very disappointed. <laughs> On the plus side, I do have 3 Marvel titles to talk about that I really enjoyed, but uh, 3 Marvel, 14 indie, and then I had one hardcover graphic novel as well. Which was what? Which was... Batman Year no Batman Earth One Volume Three. So Okay. Finishing was, off the series, is that right? Finishing off the series. That's from the Doomsday Clock team of Gary Frank and uh Jeff Johns. And Brad Anderson mm-hmm. on colours. What about yourself? Lovely. What were your totals there? Uh sitting five behind you on twenty three titles. Um I've got six DC. Uh there's that five as I've got five more Marvel new than you with eight. Uh, total Marvel and nine indie, and you were also kind enough uh, in the, the the week of the the ninth of June releases to uh, pick me up a movie variant of uh, of an issue of Grayson, uh, and that movie variant was uh, an Enter the Dragon uh, sort of style style variant for uh, for my birthday. So I really appreciate that we that we praise you from yourself and Vicky. Much appreciated. You're very welcome. I I've never seen two things fused together so much that just yelled Keith Miller as <laughs> an issue of Grayson and an Enter the Dragon homage cover. Uh, yep, I think perfect. I think that's actually the hardest one to get as well. Uh, I've oh. I've had a look around. Some some of the movie variants are pretty cool. Some of them are, are horrible. But there's a really good background one, which is like uh, the poster for Purple Rain. There's a Harry Potter one for Batman and Robin. There's uh, a Matrix one, I think, was Detective Comics. Some of them are actually quite nice, but some of them are horrible. But that Into the Dragon one is just is a lovely, lovely cover. So I hope Very you enjoy is. that. Um, something to put up, hopefully, in your new house in a frame. Uh, <laughs> new house on the way. See if we get away with that. <laughs> yeah. Certainly at least in one room anyway. Yes, Absolutely. But yeah, we'll follow the the established format at this point, which is going through some honourable mentions before getting to our pick of the week. So we'll cycle through them in order, uh, DC, then Marvel, then Indie. We should maybe change this up some week. You know, I always feel bad that I'm always leaning in with the DC stuff straight away, but we'll stick with it for this week because that's the order our notes are in. So, uh, But yeah, with DC, of course, this week, uh, I mentioned it to Keith before we started recording and his retort was probably just about right. A lot of bad books this week. 
Mm. And uh, I, 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 for me, it seems like there's a lot of bat books every week with DC because, you know, Batman is their bread and butter, I think. I think it's their bread and butter. I think it also attracts all the best talent. You know, I mean, if, just looking at some of the titles we're going to be discussing here. I mean, if you talk writers, you're talking Tom Taylor, you're talking James Tinian, you're talking Chip Zdarsky. You know, you talk artists, you're talking Andy Kubert, Guillaume March, Eddie Barrow. So uh, just a lot of people seem to be attracted to the Dark Knight himself. But even though they cut down the Batman title, for example, to monthly, they just fill the space with another bad title anyway. But but the main reason they come up in the honorable mentions so much, because as Keith says, they attract the best creators and the, the titles. They're actually quite good at differentiating themselves as well, I would say. Um, the first one we're going to be having a little chat about is Batman the Detective, number three of six. So this comes from the team of Tom Taylor and Andy Kubert on art. And I think what sets this book apart for me at the moment is that it's an interesting look at a period in Bruce's life that we don't normally get to see an awful lot of. You know, we see the Waynes getting murdered over and over and over <laughs> again. Uh, we see an upset Bruce at the funeral. We see Alfred's going to, you know, be his, his caretaker. And then we, you'll, you'll sometimes get some Raz al Ghul training stuff and then fully form Bruce back in Gotham. But what we're actually looking at here is sort of a late teenage Bruce Wayne. And in this book as well, there's lots of nods to classic Bat books. You know, there's there's a, a use of the word coward. This will always evoke year one for me. There's the evolution of the utility belt uh, in this one as well as as an unnamed character, I will say at this point, because I think you've a lot to say on this character. Uh, asks the teenager if he will always have handcuffs in his belt and he sort of goes, something I'm working on. Yeah, I thought that was, yeah, that was class. I mean, it really, it is the third issue of, of, of the of the three is a, is a flashback issue more than any of the others have been. And I would say this is the strongest issue uh, for me anyway, of, of, of the, the three issues released so far of this six issue mini series. But yeah, the character you're referring to is Henri Ducar. And he's a, he's a really interesting character. Obviously. I mean, I know Ducar from, um, from, the original isn't that not the the Liam Neeson character yeah so he uses the name uh, Henry Ducar well he says my name is merely Ducar yes of course but yeah. it's, all, uh, it's a front for actually being Raz al Ghul but clearly Henri is is a very formative uh, influence on on young Bruce and I mean is that has that always been the case or is this a wee bit more retroactive a little bit of both he's always been a character that's there and as an influencer i mean henry Descartes was always known as the, as one of the best man hunters that bruce learned from the you know if you look at the different batman lore bruce has trained with so many different people around the globe you know lady shiva when it comes to you know offense for example and defense and fighting techniques you know, trained with uh, Henry Descartes, who's known as the best man hunter in the world, for example. So there's lots of different ones along the way, but this is definitely the most emphasis I've seen on the on the character in quite some time. Yeah, he's uh, really interesting. I'd be interested to see a wee bit, a wee bit more, uh, certainly on how on how Descartes has has influenced young Bruce. Maybe a, you know, even even like four or six issues of, of them teamed up of that yeah. learning experience would be really interesting you know but yeah i love the utility belt thing and it, it sort of for me it echoed what tom taylor is doing in nightwing with uh with nightwing's uh rattan sticks mm -hmm. you know with his with his with his clubs um and the way he's using those and, and and nearly you know he's nearly using those two those two sticks as 
Nightwing's utility belt. You know they do so many so many different things, but uh, every issue there's there's always a wee surprise. But I'm having a wee bit of trouble reconciling this this Bruce Wayne. This I mean I know he's older, you know, and he's 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 he's, he's bigger, but I'm just having real, real trouble reconciling him with with Batman in the current books. But I mean again with you know Infinite Trop Frontier, you're never sure if this is a direct continuity from from those books or if it's a side continuity or if it's something more to do with dark Knight, which it looks a wee bit more like or you know i'm i'm uh, convinced this is a take on an earlier version of frank miller's the dark knight i mean the the series itself was originally called batman the dark knight before they changed mm. it to batman the detective and just with how chunky he is just alone of and andy yeah. kubert was the artist on dark knight 3 master race as well but mm. I know what you're saying. I mean, it's it, it is interesting with Infinite Frontier. You can basically link it to whatever story you want, almost in a way. But I know what you mean because he's a very hardened, very dark, very muscly, big, chunky Bruce Wayne, for lack of a better mm-hmm. term, mm-hmm. I suppose. But he's, uh, he's so, he's, he strikes me as a wee bit more of the, you know, the the blunt object rather than the you know the, the I guess the the sneaky 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 Batman. Yeah. No, I mean, as I say, I mean, Andy Kubert was the artist on Dark Knight 3, and the art in this series, I think, is fantastic. You know, also colors Brad Anderson. You know, as I say, it's pleasingly chunky, you know, expressive characters. And I really love, I love the real world element to it as well, which leads to some great location shots. You can see this is all set in Paris. Uh, you know, you see the um, the Eiffel Tower in the background. You see the Interpol offices, you know, I I like real world stuff. It's the one thing I'm always envious of in Marvel versus DC. That in DC, most of Batman stuff takes place in Gotham, whereas Spider Man is in New York. You know, I love yeah, real yeah. world stuff in comic books. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it it, it does tie them to something sometimes. Uh, you know, a la whenever the you know the, the September 11 stuff happened. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's uh, yeah I, I agree, and I'm loving the I'm loving the the Eurocentric stuff. Uh, and, and his travels across across Europe, and also him being slightly out of his depth as a result of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's been a long time since Bruce has been in these places, as is reflected in this. But yeah, Kubert is one of the greats, absolutely one of the greats, and I love his art. Yeah, so that's uh, Batman the Detective number three, very high on our list of Bat books at the moment. Uh, another Bat book that is certainly high on my list, and and, and I would think you would say uh, as well. Uh, uh-huh. we're moving on to the joker number four so this is the team of james tinney and the fourth on writing duties and game march on art and the first impression i got of this book was it only took until issue four but this definitely felt like the most joker centric issue so far you know there's there's lots of talk from the clown prince of crime as he tears down sort of gotham's uh, sorry gordon's morality and to an extent batman's views on right and wrong and morality and the difference he's going to make and how it's all just one big joke all this kind of thing and there are a few opportunities though i would send this one gordon is still very much a main player but it just felt like the joker focused issue and there's lots of opportunities for gordon to end joker in this issue he's got a few points where you know it's the voice in his head is saying just one shot just take him down but Mm -hmm. The fact he doesn't take any of them shows they're still good inside of him. And they've they've spent a lot of the first three issues trying to show, right, this guy, you know, has tried to kill you so many times. He crippled your daughter. He did this. He did that. And, you know, maybe thinking that there is no humanity left in, in Gordon. But this was the issue that very much said, no, no, there's still a good guy in there. Yeah, and I don't, I don't know if it's good so much. It's just that he's not, you know, he's not given in to... 
it's still justice. I mean, he's always good. It's it's he knows if he kills the Joker, he's he's eschewing the thing that he has upheld his whole life. You know, against against the rotten cops and and Gotham and you know all of that. So I don't I don't think it's good so much as. I don't know, yeah, justice or or or, or, or right, maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't know, and also, yeah, he's not given into his weakness, in, in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, I mean, I can't, I certainly can't say better than that. There's the scene where Joker is stitching the metal wire through Buddy's lips and his face before ripping it out is absolutely horrible. Just disturbing stuff, like pure. Pure Joker, like it's as fuck. Oh, it's just horrible, <laughs> gross, gross. Yeah, I mean, it's made to be horrible by you know fantastic art by Game March. You know, he's he really captures the the sort of the darkness of the Joker, especially in this issue. I would say, I mean, as as well as obviously that violence that you're talking about. I thought the the scene where he releases the Joker gas and everybody's under its influence, and Gordon looks up, and I thought this was a nice nod to a recent Batman story, given that there were three Jokers in front of him. <laughs> see, see what you're saying yeah i mean uh, william march is he's so good the joker the joker is terrifying like he looks horrifying he looks like a, a terrifying character and you can you can see the years and the weight and the stress on gordon's face so it's yeah i think he's i think he's brilliant and i mean of course there's one thing in here that's going to have excited you and that would be the the scene with the with Oracle and a certain character uh, standing behind her unnoticed. Absolutely. I mean, this is it. I mean, so you've been introduced to this character, Cressetta, who is the one trying to recruit Gordon to take out the Joker. And you, you found out that she was a member of uh, the Court of Isles. And the fact that even Oracle, like probably the greatest researcher you could find in Gotham City, can't find anything on her, even with, you know, utilizing Cassandra Kane and uh, a spoiler and, and so forth as well, trying to find stuff out. They can find nothing. And it just ends, as you say, that really sort of chilling image of her looking over her computer saying, what are you waiting for, Chrisetta? And you can just see Talon behind her. It's just fantastic stuff. Um, I mean, yeah, it's, it's for me, it's definitely one of DC's best titles. I will, however, agree with your your one slight criticism with it, which is that I could absolutely do without the punchline story. That's eight pages there that I'd gladly see added to the main story. Yeah, very much so. It's it it was a tough one in a way with this issue because you're halfway through the issue. You always know in a comic you reach the halfway point, you see the two staples, and you're like, class, half the issue to go, and then you go, no, there's eight pages of punchline. Oh, there's ten pages of ads at the back, but. I mean, I will I will say this, though, and it's something I think DC have been improving on because there's no right way to do it, but they're not putting so many ads through stories at the moment. Mm, they do seem yeah. to be putting it at the back a bit more, which allows the story to flow a lot more. So, uh, But yeah, still one of DC's best titles for me, but I agree. I could I, I could happily say goodbye to the uh, the backup stories here. And, and, and to be fair, I mean, the backup stories and some of the and some of the, the books, the, the detective story, Hunter's backup story, which led straight in, and, and some of those have been have been great. It's just this one just doesn't set me on fire at all. Yeah, no, that's fair. So that is Joker number four. And speaking of issue fours, we also had Batman Urban Legends hit this week. Uh, this is an interesting one to chat about, actually, because in our, our main group chat for the store, there's been a few people playing catch-up and they were so, sort of asking opinions on Urban Legends and its format. And obviously, it's a thicker bat book. It's a more expensive issue. It's an $8 issue. By and large, I, I think it's provided value for money so far. I think the stories have been really interesting. I've 
very much enjoyed the the two continuing narrative stories which interestingly probably we we have slightly different opinions in that i prefer the batman red hood story and i'm gonna say your favorite one so far has probably been the grifter story that would be fair to say i think that would be accurate i mean yeah i mean the red hood story with this one i thought was really really good as well lots of throwbacks to you know death in the family very famous story arc where jason todd is beaten to death by the joker there's some flashback art to that specific issue um but yeah, lots of really good stuff in this. And I really like the, the introduction of Mr. Freeze here. Mr. Freeze is a character you don't see an awful lot of in modern Bat books. So I, I, it's always nice to see a different villain rather than the same ones, you know, over and over again. Like Batman has the best rogues gallery in comics. You might argue Spider-Man does, which is absolutely fine. But for me, Batman has the best rogues gallery. So use it more and more and give us, you know, more variety. Yeah, I mean, I think... I think maybe Mr. Freeze is is just a wee bit of a can sometimes written the wrong way be a wee bit of a cheesy one. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and maybe sometimes doesn't doesn't suit, you know, Gotham's dark underbelly and probably the uh, you know, the, the, the Arnie portrayal of him, you know, in the in the mid nineties <laughs> probably probably upped that cheese factor to the maximum and, and writers have probably gone, Okay, well maybe we have to leave this alone for a wee while. So yeah. It is great to see him back and see him portrayed in a way that you're going, okay, he's dangerous. He's dangerous again. Um, so, yeah, but, I mean, for me, issue four, strongest issue to date, it was it was all killer, no filler for me, um, whereas some of the previous three issues did have a bit of filler. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't massively sold in the Batwing story. I thought it was okay. Um, I know you, yeah. you probably enjoyed it a little bit more than me. Yeah, I did, and I'm I'm interested in why you didn't enjoy it because I thought it was, you could take it as a real counterpoint to the next Batman stuff that John Ridley's doing because, mm-hmm. obviously, in that, uh, Jace and Luke are are they're they're head to head with each other. They're not getting on, and so this, you know, where you've got you got Batwing, you've got Luke uh, in action, but he's he's learning lessons in combat that or he's applying lessons in combat or tactics that he's learned from his, his brother whenever they were younger uh, and friends. So, I mean, I had to look twice to make sure John, John really didn't write this, but I mean, I think Cameron Johnson who did write it must have had a chat to John Ridley or at least be familiar with the next Batman stuff. Yeah. Not think? Maybe I just find the Jace stuff a bit more interesting, you know, with the next Batman rather than the, the Luke side of things, I suppose. But again, I suppose it was nice to see another Batman villain who doesn't get utilized much at the moment, which is the Riddler. Uh, so I'm, I'm more than happy to see that as well. There was some solid art in it, I would, I would say that. It's a, it's a nice look in it. Nice looking one. Well, maybe uh, maybe take a look at it again, but but look at it as part of the larger tapestry of the the next Batman stuff and see and see what comes out because that's certainly what how, how I read it. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. And then story three, we had uh, the most boring Robin in the world, Tim Drake. Uh, sorry, I was trying to trigger you there. It didn't work. I just got I just got a smile. Uh, I've never been a massive fan of Tim Drake, as you can tell, but I actually thought this was a really solid story. Uh, and again really good art i thought it introduced a really interesting villain as well it gave some personal stakes to the story for tim and you know someone from his past so yeah i thought i thought this was really really good actually yeah i really enjoyed it i think very differently about tim drake than you do i thought it was a great it was a great tim drake story i think you know obviously for me uh tim drake is is the best now robin uh you know obviously Dick Grayson is the best Robin, but he's not Robin whoa, anymore. Whoa, he's whoa, Robin, whoa, you know. whoa, 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 whoa. 
Damien Wayne uh, is the best Robin. He even has a title called Robin. Well, he does, <laughs> but that you know that, that doesn't that doesn't mean anything. He always, I mean, the 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 first the first clearly is the best in this case. Um, but I think Tim Drake, you know, he struggled with his identity through Red Robin and Drake, and there was a wee bit of a, a wee bit of a nudge at that uh, and thinking this issue. Or was it Nightwing? I can't remember. Um, where you know, Michael said, "I'm not, yeah. yeah, I'm not going to call you Drake." Um, but I think I think it's time for for Tim Drake to step back into his rightful role as Robin. He's he's the smartest. He's the best choice for 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 Robin. I think he should. You know, Damien's off doing his doing his thing in, in the Williamson book. Um, I think I think Tim Drake should 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 step in as as Robin again for sure. Yeah, that's fair. But what was good about this one was that this is part one, so this is going to be another ongoing narrative story in Urban Legends, which is good to see. Uh, and then yep. the last story, of course, you know, more great grifter stuff. I mean, just give Matthew Rosenberg a grifter book and just do it now. I disagree. I disagree 100%. Uh, but with Zealot being introduced, I don't think we're angling at a grifter ongoing. I think we're angling at Rosenberg picking up uh, Ellis's aborted plan and going full Wildcats, uh, which is you know I would have no problem with that as well. Yeah, yeah I, so give give Matthew Rosenberg Wildcats, let him integrate it fully into the DC universe. Just do it, DC. Just do it. I mean, when Zella turned up, I mean that splash page, I felt like I'd be transported back to the nineties. Yeah, exactly. I just thought it was it was it was class. It was class. I mean, that's that's stuff from. You know the just the 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 height of of the image days, you know. So uh, I, I totally agree. Totally agree. Um, Which, uh, again, yeah. I think you know for anybody out there who hasn't tried Urban Legends, I mean, again, I'm just flicking through it here. I don't see one advert in the whole book. So this is a beautiful square bound book. You're probably talking eighty pages. You're talking some you know creators who are at the very top of their game here as well. So if you haven't jumped on the Urban Legends, I very much recommend it. I think it is. I think it was originally solicited as six issues, but then there was a, a, a release recently uh, to do with Batman Beyond, uh, and I believe that was a cover for issue seven. So maybe oh, this is that's a, got me excited. Yes, yeah, so maybe this is a format that is doing well, so therefore they're going to continue. But yeah, I I never feel shortchanged by the title. I'll certainly certainly say that much. So yeah, that was Batman Urban Legends at number four, and oh my goodness, we're actually moving on to a book that's not a Batman book. <laughs> but wait around for a few minutes and we'll uh, remedy that so we will so yeah next up uh, Rorschach number 9 so Tom Keen, Jorge Fornes and Dave Stewart then on colours the thing I get from Rorschach every issue is that I really just want to go back and reread the entire thing because there is so mm -hmm. much going on in this title and every issue seems to have a different narrative device we went it, uh, it was the last issue wasn't it that was the three tiered story wasn't it yes yeah uh -huh. and then this time we're getting a double tiered story of it's it's basically two different stories taking place at the same location at different times and uh mm -hmm. it's just really beautifully done and it's very subtly done as well i would say yeah i mean it it, it very much is that you know that yeah as you uh, this series is getting it's it's getting so hot after you know, a, a Tom King slow burn start. Uh, you know, but yeah, I totally agree with you. I'll, I'll be looking forward to, to rereading this. It's going to go very, very well as a trade. And uh, as you say, dual narrative was fantastic. And it caught me in the hop at least once. And that that moment was whenever our as yet unnamed protagonist, well, actually, it was Rorschach coming down the stairs. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's about halfway through the issue. Rorschach's coming down the stairs, and the kid is sitting on the sofa. 
and then as our unnamed protagonist comes down the stairs, antagon- protagonist comes down the stairs, we see the kid still sitting on the sofa. Mm-hmm. So you suddenly realise, oh God, the kid's with him. The kid's with, you know, the protagonist, which was was really interesting as well. Um, but the, you know, that nearly sort of darker sepia tone, you know, of the of the flashbacks was was really interesting too. Um, so yeah, it did it, it caught me on the hop. But yeah, that, the, the subtlety of those background tones. You know, to to accentuate that it is, you know, a flashback. Uh, were absolutely great and just just subtle enough. Yeah, I sort of uh, thought that they were going to go the entire issue with our protagonist just saying, "Hmm," because hmm. there's about for maybe the first six to eight pages, he's just noticing details, and he's not saying anything else other than "Hmm," and I, and I know Tom Kane is very clever about this kind of stuff. He could write an entire issue based around this. And would frequently enjoy, you know, torturing the artists and relying on them. It uh, it reminded me of a very famous scene in The Wire, where McNulty and Bunk are investigating the scene, and the entire scene is just made up of the the two of them uh, using the F word in uh, you know in multiple different tones and multiple different <laughs> permutations as they as they investigate the scene. Fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I don't know if I'm reading this differently to you or not, but. Is she not in his head? Is he not talking out this conversation? She's not actually there. I because if you look at that scene you're talking about, where where he's walking down the stairs, she's not sitting on the sofa, like when he looks at the room. But then she's sitting on the sofa with Rorschach coming down the stairs. Yeah, and yeah, I get I get the impression he's true. just like she doesn't interact with anything when he pulls the rug up. She's not helping. Um, I think that a lot of this is him talking out the case in his head. And when you get to the end as well, she's sitting across from him at the table. Um, and yes, yes, you're right. You're right. You're absolutely right, Alan. And yep, then when you get 100%. to the very last panel, he's sitting on his own. So I got the impression she was just in his head and he was just like talking out the case, so to speak. That makes yeah, sense. He's, he's, he's getting in, he's as an investigator, he's getting into her head and, and trying to use it to guide his, to guide his thinking. Yep. Good job, well noticed. Yeah, good, uh, good, good pick. Well, I mean, the reason it's uh, it's it, it's there is because the art in this series is just incredible. I think Jorge Fornes is one of the best artists around at the moment. You know, he he did some great fill-in art on Daredevil. He did a little bit with Tom Keane on Batman. He's got a real David Mazzuchelli feel to him. You know, Batman Year One, Daredevil Born Again, that sort of style. And I I just think the art in this is incredible. So it is, and and the colors make it pop as well from Dave Stewart. Yeah, absolutely. Don't uh, don't shortchange uh, Dave Stewart, especially given how he used the colours last issue to highlight those three different um, those three different uh, narratives. But uh, yeah, I mean, I have to admit, I'm pretty close to becoming a fully paid up member of member of the the King Cult. Yes. You know, so you know, if you, uh, I'm sure you probably have sign up papers in the shop, and uh, <laughs> and you know, between Strange Adventures, between between this. Sheriff of Babylon, you know, obviously it's Batman stuff and uh, the 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 first issue of Supergirl. Um, yeah, absolutely. Just give me, give me, give me the King Kool Aid. Yeah, that can very much be arranged. So, yes, that was Rorschach number nine coming towards the end of its twelve issue run. Uh, well, we were away from Batman for one issue, but we're back. So uh, this week also saw the release of Detective Comics ten thirty seven, and this was another strong issue of Detective for me, but. 
it was slightly held back. You know, the inevitable had to happen, and we have an artist change. You know, this is this is a real bugbear of mine, and I've been praising DC recently, changing to the monthly books, uh, doing it so that they can keep the quality of the art from month to month, not putting artists and writers under pressure to release fortnightly. And Batman and Detective seem to be releasing monthly since the start of Infinite Frontier until this one because we now seem to be getting a new detective every couple of weeks now. I much prefer the monthly format when you've got such a stellar art as as Dan Mora on the book. Yeah, I mean, I totally, I totally agree. I'll be interested to see whether or not it actually they're just trying to play catch up or something, or whether or not greed has has gotten the better of them and they're they're trying to get it out, you know, every every couple of weeks. Um, that said, Mister Worth, who's on the cover and features very much in the issue, is pretty cool, increasingly unstable kingpin esque villain. Uh, well, maybe like the love child of Kingpin and Graven the Hunter, but I sort of really, really like him and really like the the Detective Comics exploration of of Gotham's dark underbelly. Yeah, I think your uh, combination of Craven and Kingpin there is actually a really good idea because at first I was just gonna like take the mic a little bit and say just saying Craven because of the mustache, but then you think of how they empty out the jailhouse and he actually lifts a bazooka and fires. You know, he's hunting uh-huh. Bruce Wayne. So, yeah. so in a weird way, it does sort of work. I mean, I'm obviously talking about the artist change. You know, Victor Bogdanovich, he's a more than capable artist, you know, and his style really reminds me of Greg Capullo like you would not believe. <laughs> like, it, it almost looks like he's tracing Capullo sometimes. Like, if you go back and look at, uh, like, there's a really good panel early on where Batman is, I think it's the second page in where he's on the rooftop and the sun's behind him. I mean, that could have been lifted out of Scott Snyder's Batman run and Ooh. you wouldn't have noticed any difference. Mm-hmm. But... So it's not really like it's a downgrade in artist, but it's a change of artist, and it's so annoying. It's so annoying. It's, I mean, yeah, I mean, there, there are there are folks who who thought uh, Bogdanovich is uh, was a pen name for Greg Pulo for a while there. So really? you're not you're not wrong. Yeah, so there's a few reviewers that had posited that uh, that particular theory early on, but I do think you're you're falling a wee bit short on calling Bogdanovich more than capable. I mean, I think. I think I first noticed him in those, was it the Edge of Heroes mm-hmm. family of DC books uh, a bunch of years ago? I remember him doing uh, Silencer. He picked up Silencer after Ramita, I think. He did, and then uh, he was also on the Terrifics. But, I mean, for me, his standout work has been on Ben Percy's Wolverine, which I'm sure uh, you could ask Vicky about since you don't seem to be reading it yourself. <laughs> um, that said, I mean, you do you, you couldn't not miss Dan Mora. Um, so is he back next issue? Actually, just as I'm saying this fortnightly, there's a new issue this week, which is going to be released on the 23rd of June, and it's Bogdanovich again. So, yeah, I mean, at least finish out a story arc, I would say, you know, at the very least, and then, you know, change artists or something like that. But mm-hmm. but that being said, I mean, it was a really strong issue. I thought the two the backup stories were actually really good as well. Uh, you know, one was focused on a Gotham reporter, Deb Donovan, who would more than give Lois Lane a run for her money, I think. And then there was a really good one focused on Lucius, I thought, which because it was set in the past, brings back the always welcome return of Alfred as well. Yeah, I enjoyed them both, but in particular the uh, the, the Lucius Fox one. But two one-shot backups plus the change in artist in this issue makes me wonder, sort of on what you're just saying there about next issue, makes me wonder what's what's going up, you know, what's, what's happening with this, this book. Uh, and especially because, you know, Dan Morrow was a big part of the, the, the launch of it. Uh, post Infinite Frontier, but I mean that said, if you look at the second backup story, that's a really elite creative team: John Ridley and Dustin Nguyen. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the, the backup teams in general. I mean, Mariko Tamaki writes the Deb Donovan one, who, of course, is writing the main title uh, for Detective. But also the artist, Carl Moster, is a brilliant South African artist who did Deceased Unkillables recently. So it's not like they've skimped on the talent for this book. But, you know, you look at the main story, there's only 20 pages of art. So it's almost like they wanted to split it over two and, you know, maybe do an extra backup. I'm not sure, but I again, I've been very, very quick to praise DC for their monthly format and everything else. I really wish they would just stick to it, to be honest, because when you've got Dan Moore on Detective, you keep Dan Moore on Detective as best you can, <laughs> please, other than covers, you know. But yeah, Detective in general, I think, has been very, very strong ever since and from Frontier, and this was, this was another great one. So Detective 1037. And then just one last one, I'm just going to throw a very quick uh, shout out for it. I'm not even going to go into a lot of detail on it because it's the second to last issue ever, ever, which is American Vampire 1976, and this is number nine of ten. But this is also the last American Vampire series. Uh, creator Scott Snyder, who has been writing the series since uh, its inception, and Raphael Albuquerque on art. And they have said this is the end of it all. So the Vampire Magnum Opus is coming to an end. And this was just an, an issue full of great fist-pumping moments. You know, great art. Massive stakes, as you would expect, Yo. this close to the end. Puns. Stakes, you say? Oh, pun very much intended. <laughs> and it, it really does look like the series is going to finish off brilliantly. I mean, American Vampire, go back to the start of it. It was co-created with Stephen Keane at the start. Uh, brilliant mythology, great look through American history as if vampires have always been there secretly pulling the strings in the background. Made vampires scary again, great art the whole way through. And again, I, I'm, I do think this is going to end really strongly as well, which is really satisfying. Yeah, I mean, uh, we've talked about it before. I, I didn't get on this early enough, so I'm going to be waiting for a big old giant on the bus. Well, there is an omnibus already available, but doesn't have 1976 on it. So hopefully they'll send it back and uh, throw in 1976 as well. But that's yeah, what I'm hoping. Brilliant series, brilliant series. So yeah, that is American Vampire 1976 number nine, and that is an end to the DC honorable mentions. So we're going to move on then to the Marvel side of things. As I say, I'm maybe reading a little less Marvel at the moment, but that doesn't mean there isn't some great stuff to talk about here. That being said, the first issue is all you. Absolutely. So we're kicking off Marvel with Amazing Spider-Man number 68 by Nick Spencer, uh, Ed Breeson. And uh, and uh, we've got three artists on here, Marcello Ferreira, Carlos Gomez, and Zego, Zay Carlos. Um, and this is part two of the Chameleon Conspiracy. So now we know we're coming to the end of Nick Spencer's run on Amazing. Every issue is just a little bit special and we're barreling towards sinister war here which is carefully being teased in the in the background and the team are digging really deep into spider history and they're they're deep cutting left and right uh these these last few few arcs and well if you I mean if you've been waiting to see the 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 chameleon named in the chameleon conspiracy if you've been waiting to see the chameleon action you'll have to wait a wee bit longer as he's been he's been held in standby for now probably for a for a for a twist in the tail um See but what happens in the yo? So uh, what <laughs> happens uh, in this issue is we delve into Ned Leeds' uh, storied history from way back in Amazing Spider-Man 275, back in the early 70s, uh, unraveling his history as the the Green Goblin. Uh, you know, 
Meanwhile, we're also unraveling the story of Peter's lab mate, Jamie, and the clairvoyant devices created that can see the future and his entanglements with um, Chance, who runs a, like a super casino in New York and is also a supervillain. And you know what happens whenever folk get in debt to supervillains who run casinos. And we're, we're digging a wee bit into Jamie's history, uh, you know, and how he's everything he's doing is to try and look after his sick mother and his, his sister. So, I mean, it's Spider-Man. It's just full of energy, great detailed, action-packed art, and the three different artists not really detracting from that at all because there's different jumps between, you know, flashbacks and, and stories being told and narratives. So, you know, it, it, the three artists didn't bother me at all, really, because mm -hmm. of those those jumps. Um, so, yeah, this is, this, is, this is really heating up, as I say, we're... We know that Nick Spencer's leaving amazing now, so he's gonna be he's gonna be wrapping up what's a what's a fantastic run and we've got plenty plenty still to go, but but every issue's just gonna be a wee bit more special. And in this issue, which is one of the, the first that I read me pull this, I noticed a wee John Paul Leon obituary, which is uh been well the obituary it's not the same obituary in both Marvel and DC, but Marvel and DC are both doing obituaries this month, which are which are really uh, really nice uh in this in, in the Marvel remember section it's uh, joe casada that writes about the unique talent who who we sadly lost uh, earlier this year so and i see something very similar in the in the dc books yeah i think the dc books it's written by jim lee so it just it just goes to show how how well loved john paul leon was in the industry not just for his talent but also just as just as a person you know very much well loved so yeah i mean it's it must be sad for him isn't spider-man you've you've loved nick spencer's run so it's I mean, do you have any hopes for you know he'll take over or any speculation or? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, a lot. I've really enjoyed Nick Spencer's run. It has had ups and downs, but it's overall it's been a fantastic run. Um, you know, but more than anything, I love Spider-Man. Uh, so he's 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 Marvel's flagship character uh, to me. Always will be, and uh, I just I, I am really interested to see yeah to see what comes out over the next few weeks or months as to as to who the creative team on spider-man is is going to be because whatever happens nick spencer is going to leave them in a really lovely place where he has you know he, he's dug up a lot of a lot of uh the rogues gallery from from the early days of, of amazing spider-man from you know the, the the early 60s those those first few issues doc ock and chameleon and craven and kingpin he's really you know, so he's going to leave whoever comes next in a really, really awesome place, and I think that's his, that's his goal. Whisper quietly, but could John Romita Jr. coming back to Marvel have anything to do with the Spidey title suddenly being up for grabs? That's interesting. Interesting. Only just thought of that there now, but I'm quite proud of that. <laughs> <laughs> Apologies in advance if you get disappointed when it's announced and it's not him. But but yeah, we'll be keeping an eye certainly on the Spidey books for any announcements uh, in the next while. As, as Keith says, I mean, Spidey is very much, you know, Marvel's flagship character. Anybody who jumps on to Spider-Man, they're always in it for the long run. You know, Nick Spencer's going to be going up over 80 issues. You know, obviously, Dan Slott was on it for, for 10 years, I believe, before that. So Yeah, absolutely uh, it was. I'm sure it's a decision they will not take lightly and they will make sure that the right person gets brought in. So, But yeah, that's Amazing Spider-Man 68. Another Marvel title this week, one I actually read, believe it or not, and one I continue to enjoy is Conan the Barbarian. So we're reaching issue 22. Uh, so we're continuing on with Jim Zub and writing duties and Corey Smith as the penciler. Corey Smith, is that the original artist on Invincible, any chance? 
Uh, I don't know. I never thought about it. I literally <laughs> just thought about it just that second. I was, or is that Corey Walker? That's Corey Walker, yeah. Ah, That's Corey Walker. yeah that would have been yeah. so so seamless, so seamless. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, Corey Smith is the artist on this one, and we're in the part four of the Land of the Lotus uh, storyline. I really, really enjoyed this. This was a, a refreshing change of pace for what Conan has been. So Conan, to this point, has all been swords and sorcery, you know, blood and guts, you know, lots of action. And this issue just seemed to be a lot about, like, can we actually tone this barbarian down and try and fit him into a society i mean conan is like the eternal loner who you know just wanders has adventures you know hooks up with people then discards them when he doesn't need them anymore Ooh. but this one was very much like getting him ready for a ceremony getting him ready to to meet like a chosen one and then the the book took a really good twist at the end i thought i i really really enjoyed this issue yeah i thought it was i thought it was great as you say i think I think Conan is sort of the definition of antisocial, uh, you know, with regard to not belonging to any any society and being a being an out, you know, the outcast or the outsider in, in every one of them. But yeah, I mean, this is such a solid series. I'm so pleased that you know that Jim Zog was able to take over from from Jason Aaron so seamlessly. And while this issue may not be the strongest of this arc, I mean, it does drop off a little in places, and the art sometimes does the same you know just just for a moment I, I mean i'm really loving exploring this corner of conan's word and watching his trademark intractability soften with experience and you know his conan is not a stupid man he's an incredibly intelligent man just channeled through the the knowledge the knowledge and experiences of a, of a barbarian and uh, i don't know if you noticed but there's a there's a there's a couple of little panels that are are we narrow we narrow strips across the page mm-hmm. of him of him fighting, you know, an old master or the the weapon cata sequences that are just brilliant and, and flowing. And as you say, the uh, the payoff is the payoff at the end is great. So very much enjoyed it. Very much enjoyed yeah, it. Yeah, the payoff shows why to Conan why he remains a loner. Because mm. this is the kind of crap that happens if he trusts people. <laughs> you know, he even throws out a great line of damn sorcery. You know, so uh yeah, just a really solid title. So it is Conan, you're never you know, it, it might not always be the best title of the week, but it is always going to be a solid 7 to 8 out of 10 every time. You know what you're getting that title, and it delivers delivers have every you, time. Have you read any of the, the the Howard Conan books? I actually haven't, no. You might you might enjoy, and, and of course then there's the, the, the Schwarzenegger movies. Well, I recently picked up all 12 issues of Savage Sword of Conan, which was the sister okay. series to Jason Aaron's. Uh, so I'm going to be jumping in that. I think it's Jerry Dugan on writing duties for those. Yeah, so. Jerry Dugan, and I think I think Jim Zub's involved there as well, maybe. Yeah. Uh, later on, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's the case. Well, once I get through them, I will happily throw them your way because I don't think you were on Savage Sword, were you? You were. Just... I was. I was. Oh, I you did. Lot. Oh. Yeah. Why, why did I think you, otherwise? You, you, <laughs> you sold them to me. So. I, I sell you a lot of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so that's Conan twenty two. Uh, next up, we have Spider Man Spider Shadow number three. Now, this is the uh, the first title that obviously set off the new What If imprint for Marvel. And interestingly enough, this started as four issues, but I see it's been extended to five, which is interesting. Uh, so this is Chip Zdarsky writing and Pascal Ferry on art and Matt Hollingsworth on colors. And I really enjoyed this issue. It was a it was the very definition of a midpoint where the story now goes off in a different direction that we were maybe not expecting. 
I thought this was going to be four to five issues of the darkness of Peter the whole way through it and what the symbiote has done to him and how it's warped him, the the dark actions he's been doing the whole way through this, the murders he's been committing, the cleaning up of New York by just killing criminals left, right and center. I, I very much felt this was going to be a story with no redemption, but I think this issue may have may have moved it in a different direction. Yeah, I mean, this is not the this is not the the back half that I was expecting. Um, if you if you listen back, I was I was predicting something very very different. But uh, yeah, I mean, this the, the the centerpiece of this is a a deadly duel with a Sinister Six led by none other than Eddie Brock wearing a murdered Duck Ox arms. Uh, not quite as horrifying as Chip has portrayed some of Peter's previous actions and previous issues, but there were two real chills for me that came uh, in the issue, and that was. The one scene of Reed and Cap's obvious fear that Spider-Man has gone off the rails and, and turned evil, uh, you know, and it just sort of shows, you know, sometimes Spidey is portrayed as the, you know, the the butt of the joke or the, you know, the wisecracking hero, uh, you know, against the elder statesman of Reed and, and, and Cap, but, you know, do they fear that Spider-Man might be too powerful for them? You know now that he's that he's his sense of responsibility is gone, and and then the other was Peter driving around with the bloody beaten corpse of Beetle in the back of the car, casual uh, as you, you like. Know, so, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, with his with his inner monologuing. Um, also love the exchanges between MJ and Black Cat. They're great. They're a bit of a a callback to years gone years gone by and Ghosts of Girlfriends Past. And uh, yeah, said it before, but I love Pascal Ferry's art. Um, love seeing it again. Um, so great, but. Did you did you get the impression that Reed had cloned the symbiote? Yeah, I mean, from... it, it would certainly explain it for how by the end of the issue that the symbiote is obviously starting to take over the Fantastic Four because it couldn't have got from uh, from Peter all the way to the Baxter Building that quickly, could it? Mm, no, definitely not. And you know, he has he has a lot of uh, jars with 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 young or, or with symbiotes in, it, in them you know so i get the impression that he might have used the the tests that he did in peter earlier in the in the first issue wasn't it yeah and I mean, maybe taken that tissue and cloned it in some way i suppose it would make sense because peter wasn't cooperating with them in any way for the research and reed richards at his base level is a researcher he's a, a seeker of mm -hmm. knowledge so he obviously didn't think that it would be anything wrong with that but obviously the symbiote is uh is, is turning its dark attentions to the Fantastic Four, as I say. Uh, I did mm. like the detail of when Spidey is fighting the Sinister Six, that it's J. Jonah Jameson that both takes him down and saves him. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I think, absolutely. I thought that just sums up his relationship with J. Jonah Jameson so well. Because obviously, yeah, obviously when it's just Spidey, he's like, oh, I'll, you've given me no choice. May God have mercy on me. And then he sees it's Peter and he's like, oh, damn it. Why'd it have to be you? Yeah, at... And that's a wee, a wee uh, throwback as well, because that the Spider Slayer automaton that uh, that J. Jonah Jameson is piloting mm -hmm. was one that he he um, hired. Uh, was it Alistair Smythe uh, to 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 create a, a series of Spider Slayers that J. J. piloted remotely in order to try and take down Spider Man, and then eventually uh, Smythe's Smythe's son became. The Spider Slayer and and the six one six reality, so mm -hmm. uh, so that's a wee that's a wee deep cut as well there, um, back into the early issues of, of Amazing Spider Man. So nice one, nice one, Chip. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm glad that the series is is proving surprising for you because I think your initial worry with this series that it was just gonna 
retread over old ground but just not really give you any surprises and the fact the story is taking such a, a shift in direction i think should hopefully be pleasing so. for a for a spidey yeah. fan like yourself it, it is it is uh, absolutely i mean i i enjoyed the first issue but i wasn't quite as taken with it as you were but the second issue sort of uh up the up the game a wee bit and this has has turned a corner massively yeah, so that is Spider-Man Spider-Shadow number three. As I say, I believe that is up to now five issues instead of four. Uh, and then one last Marvel one just to have a quick chat about, and that is Strange Academy number 11. So this is uh, written by Scotty Young, art by Humberto Ramos, colors by Edgar Delgado. And I just love this series. It is just mm. so much fun. It's This is definitely a jumping on point. So if you haven't been following Strange Academy, this is the start of a brand new arc, brand new mystery. Uh, definitely go back and read everything before. But if you are looking for, to a jumping on point, this is a good one for it. And again, this is one of my personal favorite Marvel titles. You know, there's great humor to it. There's really good world building, you know, and we're now setting up a whodunit. I love a whodunit. I love a yeah. mystery. <laughs> especially when you've already established who all the characters are because you know that whoever did this is within these characters already they've spent 10 issues setting these characters up yeah yeah. and some of the interrogation scenes in this issue were fantastic not only were the interrogation scenes fantastic the person conducting the interrogation was fantastic (laughs) person or duck person or duck indeed hard to duck pi at your service (laughs) yeah it was. Uh, I thought that was a real great, a real great comedy turn. I mean, who are you going to bring in whenever there's a, a who done it to be investigated? But, but hard to dock. Yeah, I mean, I I love this. I love this series as well. Scotty Young is just doing fantastic work on it. Every issue is a winner. Heartfelt, character driven, and with enough uh, Marvel magical crunch to keep it all interesting. Mm-hmm. And uh, the mystery in question is is who has shattered Toth. Uh, and you know, within that, there's the reveal of who Toth's parents are man thing who is of course marvel's version of swamp thing uh and exactly what's going on with calvin's jacket the callback to there's a callback to jason aaron and chris uh Bacalow's doctor 2016 doctor strange run with the return of mr misery uh so that was a that was a nice one i was a huge fan of of that run and i mean kudos to scotty young for focusing on some of the lesser covered characters in the series so far as well because it's a huge ensemble yeah, and I, I just think it was very, very well written because you obviously want to have consequences in this world. And, you know, at first you think Toth is dead, but then they talk about how his people can be put back together. So you think, oh, well, all danger is gone. But then they put him back together. And just like any good jigsaw or any family jigsaw, they're missing the last piece, which, of <laughs> course, is his heart. So it still gave it stakes, which I thought was really clever, because if you're doing an all ages book like this, you don't want to like have your character shattered and killed for kids, you know, for younger readers to read it. So I just think the storytelling is really, really clever in it. And there is something for everyone in this book. And and again, some of the humor I thought was great. You know, when Howard the Duck is uh, interrogating Calvin Morse, for example, and he's just spouting out every cliche he can think of. <laughs> I'd like my phone call. Uh, you're not under arrest. I'm not a cop and you're not under arrest. Then I want my lawyer. You're a kid. You don't have a lawyer. <laughs> Good point. Yeah, I love whodunits. I wanted to play along, you know. I just the, the characters are so well defined by this point, and uh, yeah, the strange cat. If you're not on it, get on it. It is just a brilliant title for all ages, and I'm genuinely curious as to who shattered Toth. Yeah, I mean uh, the and I love the the callback to the inclusion of Mister Misery, who 
in in that uh, GSNR Unrun, the, the whole crux of it was that magic has a cost. Mm-hmm. That's where the, the whole idea that magic has a cost comes from, and uh, and the costs that Doctor Strange, you know, went through, and uh, the 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 Mr. Misery was was a magical being that was created by Doctor Strange, and it was into that being. This is really dark, actually, when you think about it. it was into that being that Doctor Strange deposited all the pain and suffering mm-hmm. that the cost of magic caused him, so he didn't have to feel it. Uh, and and that that thing in the cellar was what ended up becoming it. Adopted a name that sort of mimicked, uh, you know, the alias of its creator, Doctor Strange. It became Mister Misery. Um, so uh, that's a wee a wee potted history on on who who Mister Misery is there uh, for you. Yeah, see, you have the, you already have a way into to some of this stuff. I just thought it was a really scary, over the top horror based reveal, which I thought was really cool. Like the design of the coat, like coming to life and all the eyes, yeah. and I just, you know, and then obviously the anger filling up inside of him as he's being accused, and everything. I just, again, it's it's great how it can jump from being a playful, you know, younger, almost a younger reading book to having good moments of horror as well but still maintain that all ages identity to it so yeah uh, you know whenever you whenever you realize exactly who misery is you realize the possible implications of this you know with dr strange being the the, the head teacher of the of the academy mm-hmm. and uh and, and that sort of thing so that, yeah this could get this could get really interesting and yeah so again if you're not on it get on it one of marvel's best titles at the moment and that is strange academy at number 11 so that's going to take us then on to the honorable mentions for the indie side of things it might be a little bit up and down this one as there's one or two books here i haven't read <laughs> one of which keith just really wants to talk about and I, I feel bad sitting here but on the plus side i did read some classic marvel last night instead of reading this you know Another recommendation from you, which was Immortal Iron Fist. Uh, but Brilliant. sure, why don't you talk around Die Number Seventeen without going into too many spoilers? Okay, I'll do. I'll do my very best. Um, it's going to be difficult because Die Seventeen was very close to being my my pick of the week, and is possibly my favorite issue of Die so far. And this is another one, like I guess, like uh, Batman the the Detective, and like uh, Amazing Spider Man now that. Feels like it's it's a wee bit of gold dust every issue because we only have three more issues of this left, mm-hmm. and Kieran Gillen is very much pushing towards a dark ending uh, to match the the darkness that has been central to this book right the way through. I mean, the whole concept of this issue is of character bleed, which is the idea as a as a role player that your your character harnesses a part of the player, something that the player's going through. You know something that is important to you that you you imbue into that character. I mean, in this, we have we have Ash, who's Dominic's character, exploring, you know, their gender sexuality struggles. You know, we've got uh, uh, what do you call him, the the grief knight, Matt. You know, driven by driven by the emotion of the loss of his his father, Chuck's in denial about the the incurable disease that he has, and his his character. Is very much about about denial and everything just being luck. We have, you know, Angela is the neo and her parenting issues, and there's a, I guess that's central to the big reveal in this issue, which is, which is who the who the fallen are or what the fallen are, and you know that, well, wee bit of a spoiler, Alan, I'm afraid, but that 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 those those fallen are 
or characters characters who have died in game and taken that piece of the player with them when they die mm-hmm. which is really dark as a as a role player as somebody who enjoys tabletop role playing games that's really clever and really dark <laughs> it really it really hit me you know it really hit me um so very 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 interesting for for tabletop role playing game fans and specifically for for fans of Lovecraft and in particular for fans of the Call of Cthulhu role playing game you know this is this is a really special issue the protagonists hosts in this arc is H.P. Lovecraft himself or a, or a shadow a shadow of him like like H.G. Wells or like uh, Bronte before him but his relationship with Day seems to be a little more two way Day seems to have informed H.P. Lovecraft's writings and, and his writings have informed Day so it's really it's really interesting, but I mean, I'll go no further. But I mean, Gillen, Kieran Gillen has paired himself with so many different artists across all of his different books. Uh, you know, Once in Future, Dan Mora, yeah, all of those those different, you know, with his, his Loki stuff and, and that. And his writing style works so well with all of them. But you have to agree, Stephanie Hans is something else. Oh, I mean, really definitely. matches this book. Yeah, I mean, Stephanie Hans was uh, the first thing that actually brought me to die, even, you know, ahead of Kieran Gillen, maybe I wasn't as familiar with back then. It was mostly just Wicked and Divine, but I saw the preview pages and the art, I just thought was absolutely incredible. So, um, yeah, I mean, I... With, with die there's just there's so much going on with it there's a part of me you know just thinks let the let rest issues pile up read it one go but i think i will jump into this and read every individual issue but then once 20 comes out i'm not just reading 20 cold i'm gonna read one to 19 i'm gonna sit i'm gonna make a night of it i'm gonna sit and read the thing in one sitting i think so uh because it has been some great great storytelling to this point so uh yes yeah, so that's die 17 as uh, die approaches its end with issue 20 so but a, a series that we very much enjoyed the first issue of is now as far as issue two is the good asian uh so this is the title from pontek pishishon uh oh, sorry pornsack pishishon uh alexandra tefegne on art and i think very important to say uh dave johnson on covers and lee lockridge mm. on colors um yeah. yeah i mean i thought just this was a fantastic second issue following on from an almost perfect first issue yeah i mean it's it's another title that i think will always benefit from long form i mean it's when you enter the detective noir genre you want all the pieces of the puzzle you know all in a row for you to try and figure it out as you go i think and i think there's lots of deep storytelling going here there's lots of interesting themes with obviously you know, how the, the Chinese-American people are dealt with at this time. There's themes of loyalty to your own people or to your profession or to the law. There's there's family issues going on here from the past. There's It's just a, an amazing world. I mean, it's very classic storytelling. And then you get to, like, the center page, and the art is Ooh. just <laughs> massive. It's like this big dance sequence. It reminded me of the start of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Yeah, there's a there's an element of that. I suppose it's a similar time period. Yeah. Um, so so there is that. I mean, yeah, we learn we learn a little bit more about our protagonist Edison Hark and his complicated family and his complicated history. And through him, we're exploring the time period and the prevailing anti-Asian sentiment. I mean, the covers are absolutely brilliant, as you said. And uh, I mean, are you, what are you thinking of? Uh, you're enjoying to think he's art. I think the art's incredible, I, and, and it's so different the whole way through the book. I mean, when you have this massive attack at the end by someone who's clearly in disguise with a big, massive, sort of paper mache head swinging an axe, 
you know, on one page, but then you have this dance sequence on another page. It's, you know, I love the way that they they sort of show with Edison almost his um, his superpower. Almost, I love the three panels in a row where it's close up on his ear, then you see what he's hearing, which is on the balcony, and then the next one is that it's you know bangers going off as opposed to gunshots. You know, because he's talking about how it's you know the details are all wrong. I I love the art in this. I think the art's one of the strongest things in it. Uh, well, in fairness, everything's strong about it. Highly recommend. You know, I, I'm a big big believer in music with comics and the Chinatown soundtrack, classic uh, Jack Nicholson gumshoe movie from the seventies. Mm. Perfect with this. Must, must give it a whirl and don't ignore uh, the back matter here. Uh, Pornsack uh, Pishishote goes into you know, the Chinese Exclusion Act and, and Angel Island. And it's so funny because some of the, the pictures that are included in the back matter, you can see how they have absolutely informed uh, some of the panels in, in this issue and the previous issue, uh, which is really, really interesting. Yeah, that's it's another good example of how with a lot of image books, you always get good value beyond just the main sort of story. So, and again, that all adds to the to the background matter and the, the world building, I suppose, as well. So, yeah, good Asian, great title so far. First two issues have been pretty much spot on so far. Uh, what else have we got here? So next up, we have something I know you are absolutely loving. Yeah, Oblivion song number 31. Um, I will not spoil too much here, but we enter the endgame, the final arc of Kirkman and Felici's sci-fi epic Oblivion song with five issues left before the finale, and it definitely has that feel to it. We're following on from the cliffhanger at the end of the last issue. Uh, and this, I mean, it's 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 a game changer as the, the, the Katal invasion comes to a head and Dakul's plan is is revealed and we start looking at how our heroes are going to try and, and even start dealing with it. But, I mean, this is a book which has had a lot of complexity, a lot of character interplay, really interesting concepts and core concepts and, 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 and switch-ups. And I would say this would undoubtedly have been the pick of the week many more times over the past three years if we were all reading it. Uh, but it's one that I just don't want to spoil for you. Um, <laughs> so, so, alas, and... Uh, very upset that my compadre here is, is behind in this, but I think maybe we could be looking at uh, a book club whenever it's done. I think that could be arranged. I mean, yeah, it's going to go 36 issues. Kirkman's very good at working out exact numbers of issues for how can he release things in certain formats. So Oblivion Song, they've started releasing these hardcovers, which are 12 issues at a time. So you'll get three hardcovers or you'll get six trade paperbacks. Or mm-hmm. the individual issues as well. So, no, I mean, given my love of Walking Dead and my love of uh, Firepower, you know, I Kirkman's skill as a storyteller is never in doubt for me. It's just one of these series that just got away from me a little bit at the start. So, uh, I tend to read it more in trades now. But we'll definitely have a good chat about it sometime in the future. I have no doubt. Um, I'm about to consistently disappoint you here again because one more title that we're We've got on our list is win number seven. So this is the uh, the James Tinian uh, young adult title. Uh, sorry, I haven't read it yet. Ah, <laughs> uh, Alan, do you even read comics? What's I going on? Tell you, I tell you, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to lose my street cred at this rate. <laughs> so yeah, this is the second issue since we came back to Tinian's young adult fantasy world builder, and it's it's taken me wee, a wee bit of time just to refocus on the characters and the relationships uh, while the the story itself continues to to jog along at a at a steady pace the the vampires with a y have uh, have attacked our hero's boat thorns left injured and wind is left to fly ahead and try and find help and it looks like we're hitting that point that 
you know, where they where they that, that very often happens in both games. And uh, I'm thinking back today, uh, and it actually happened in the middle arc of day, and also in the likes of the two towers where the party is split and all go their separate ways uh, mm-hmm. to, to to do a variety of things before hopefully coming back, uh, you know, at the at the conclusion. But loads of action and great character work and uh, Michael Dealinus, you know, his expressive, slightly cartoony style gives. I mean, it seems big and, and gives gives the art room to breathe and the story room to breathe and is, is also absolutely beautiful to look at. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, Wind is a title I very much enjoy. It's just uh, I didn't happen to get to it this week. I will remedy that very soon, I am sure. But one last title I am going to throw a bit of love out for uh, simply because issue three was my pick of the week a few weeks back. And we are hitting issue four of Carmen, which is an image title written and drawn by Guillaume Marchand. I had a little bit of a panicky moment with this one because I absolutely love this title. This title is so, so good. And the ending could have been, the ending of issue four actually could have been the ending of the story and ending it in quite a, sort of giving you a conclusion but leaving you to fill in a few blanks yourself. So I had this panicky moment where I thought this was the last issue, but it's not. It's the second last issue. But yeah, this is a genuinely brilliant series. You know, it, it hits you right in the feels. You know, it simultaneously builds this fantastical mythology of these angels who guide people from, you know, life to the afterlife, but also lets them see some of the mistakes they left behind and some of the people that, you know, they hurt throughout their life that now they can do nothing about. You know, it's it's got something to say about the personal relationships you build and, you know, that, that sort of, that gap you leave if you're no longer there for them. And as a title in terms of its art it's a book that just gets more and more beautiful i mean there's there's a great double page spread in this one showing how all of the uh the afterlife how they keep track of who dies and you know what angels they're sending off to you know guide them through and all this kind of thing it's called the uh the karma core and it it's like something out of sandman just really fantastical uh just a great great title and again it's one i'm going to really really push when i hit trade and again, might even be a book club at some point because I understand the certain Rodimus Maximus is also reading this. So. Oh yes, okay, great. That would be that would be great. I'll get caught up to date, and we'll see if we can uh, if we can reel him in for that. I think that will be a plan. So yeah, Carmen number four. That is the last honourable mention for this week, which leaves us then just with our picks of the week. So. Uh, despite all that DC love for honourable mentions, no space for DC in the picks of the week this week. Uh, for me, it is an indie title, and I believe with Keith, it is a Marvel title. So we're going to kick things off with my one, and I get the feeling if I hadn't picked this, Keith might have picked this. <laughs> You're not wrong. Not wrong. This is a new image title, so this is called The Six Sidekicks of Trigger Keaton. So this is written by Carl Starks and art by Chris Schweizer. Uh, so a brand new number one. And what a great indie standout title this was. Uh, I wasn't too sure what to expect with it. You know, but this is 100% my wheelhouse. This is an exploration of 80s action heroes. It's a murder mystery. It's got fun characters, diverse cast, uh, tons of suspects with different motivations. And, you know, as the book intimates uh, at one point, who doesn't want to see the stuntman worse? So essentially the the basic idea for this one is it's all built around the murder of Trigger Keaton. So who's Trigger Keaton? Trigger Keaton, to put it nicely, was an asshole. Uh, Trigger Keaton was a TV star who did all of his own stunts because he thought that was the only way to make himself look manly. 
Did he actually hit people in the face during fight scenes? Yes, he did. Did he break noses during it? Yes, he did. And he got away with it all because he was basically the biggest star on the planet for a while. But that's all in the past. And what we do for a majority of this book is we're in the present where he has been found dead. And there are six different suspects, all of whom worked with him on different TV shows along the way. And there's some really great storytelling world building at this point as you're introduced to each individual sidekick. They'll show you like a magazine cover about, you know, this new sto- this new uh, title coming out, which has uh, Trigger Keaton in it, but also who the sidekick is. And then you'll see like a little excerpt beside it about how the, the show got cancelled, you know, due to allegations towards Trigger Keaton. Like, this guy was not a nice guy to say the least. Um, but yeah, this, this was fantastic. So it was, I mean, I know... I know you were definitely going to be on board this. I remember us going through the previews and you weren't sure. But then I mentioned Kyle Starks. Yep, and that was me. That was that was absolutely me. No, I uh, I I really uh, I'm really glad that I, that I that I put this in the pull list and yeah, I mean absolutely Trigger Trigger Keaton just struck me as all of the worst parts of uh, a huge smudge of Chuck Norris and a bit of Burt Reynolds and a bit of David Hasselhoff and all of those other sort of action heroes of that of that ilk and and i think what's what's interesting is trigger keaton has had a career throughout you know those you know the 60s 70s 80s 90s and the the sidekicks all represent i guess those those eras of 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 action Mm -hmm. movies as well yeah there was a lot of great inside sort of looks at hollywood about you know how times as you say have changed over the decades and you know trigger very much came from that era as you said the likes of you know burt reynolds and chuck norris so forth where it was the 80s tough guy it was i do all my own stunts show the close-ups while i do this this the face is the money you know of it all that kind of thing and but i i also loved once you started getting into the sidekicks and so forth i just thought they were all really interesting diverse characters as well um, you know, you have the child star who, you know, Trigger ruined his career. Like this was a, this was a heartbreaking early scene yeah. where he was like, you know, oh, I've been practicing, I've been practicing. He just wants to be like Trigger, you know. He just wants to be his hero, you know. It's, I mean, I, that's one of the things that I I found myself less interested in who killed Trigger Keaton uh, than in the the histories of of the various sidekicks and of their interplay. They're all totally inept and broken you know, in their own ways. And as I say, they, they sort of, their ways of exploring and representing their own era of heroic TV. As you say, you have number one is Paul Hernandez, the, the child's sidekick. And then you have Terry Komodo, who's, you know, that he's, he's the beer, the beer drinking, you know, 70s flipping, you know, action star himself or, or, or the wannabe. And then Tad, Tad, Tad Haycroft was number three, but he was, he wasn't a sidekick so much as he voiced, he voiced the, the car, that Trigger Keaton drove. So there you've got there you've got an absolute Knight Rider ripoff yeah. there. Thought then, you'd like that. Yeah, Rich, Rich Brannigan, who was clearly the token black guy, uh, you know, at that at that time. And then you've got the 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 uh, the, the girl sidekick who was, I guess, you know, around the time of the next karate kid, you know, which was, you know, that. And then you've got Miles Nguyen, you know, who's the the analytical, you know, problem solver, you know, the the detective probably at a time when when Trigger Keaton was too too old to be the action star anymore and had to be an investigator you know so i thought that was i thought that was really really fantastic yeah and just uh, just tons of great character moments i mean you mentioned miles for example obviously he was he played a detective in the show so he picked up bits and pieces along the way but i love how 
uh, the police come to it also shows how far trigger keaton has fallen like no one cares that he's dead like the cops turn up to the apartment and they're just like yeah you know he's probably committed suicide like you know well the funeral home can come and pick him up and that's it and then you know miles the center you're not going to quarantine the area this is clearly a murder you know look at the the stool that's fallen over look at the beer two different brands of beer cans here and they're just like what was your association again <laughs> i just filmed the pilot with them they're just like why don't you leave the real police work to us buddy even though they could not care less at all um and then I loved as well at his funeral, like no one wants to even talk to any of these sidekicks apart from apart from one of them. You know, they're all sort of like, you know, aren't you going to talk to us all? What the hell? They're almost like those forgotten child TV actors that no one cares about anymore. Yeah, 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 yeah very much. You know, they were sort that of was... famous for five minutes. Yeah, hugely, hugely funny, heartfelt book. Uh, as you say, from Kyle Starks, the man who brought us Big Rock Candy Mountain, which is, uh, you know, exactly why I was interested in this book. And, you know, it very much has the same sort of scrappy feel as, as you know, Big Rock Candy Mountain could go anyway here. Uh, you know, that was that was Hobo Fights, this is Stuntman Wars. Yeah, and, the, and another, just a, a small shout out that I would like to throw is that it's an image book. There's not one advert in it. There is not one thing in this book that is not related to the title Six Sidekicks of Trigger Keaton. You know, first page. Oh, I also love, by the way, martial art. How amazing the name is that? That had me chuckling the whole way yeah, through. Yeah, I mean, but there's so many, there's so many, you know, Chuck Norris movies that are Chuck Norris TV series that that's a ripoff of. You know, it's that's hilarious. You know, oh, or, I love or, that. You know, I love that, for, but for sure, you know. But yeah, as I say, there's no adverts through the book. You know, you get that opening page, which you know catches you up with who the six different sidekicks were. You've got fake movie posters for some of the stuff that he worked on. You've got a fake martial art poster. Join the Trigger Keaton Circle of Friends fan club. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. I was looking around for an address. I I was like, oh, seven ninety five. You'll probably get like a signed Kyle Starks photo or something. You know, you get his, you know, his six by eight that would be on his resume at the, you know, the back of the comic. Uh, signed by Trigger Keaton. Himself, yeah, just brilliant world building all around, and and even a little bit of, uh, even almost a little bit of a novelization called Trigger Finger by Style <laughs> K Starks as well. So fantastic value. Brilliant. Really, brilliant. really, really yeah. great book. Good choice, good choice. I thought this was, yeah, yeah, really, really enjoyed it. It was, it was right at the top of the list. I gotta say. Yeah. So that was my pick of this week, which was the six sidekicks of Trigger Keen number one from Image Comics, Kyle Starks and Chris Schweitzer. So, you'll finish us off then. What is your pick of this week? Couldn't, couldn't hold it out anymore. I think, uh, I think we, we, as I say, day, day seventeen was, was up there. That's, that's one that uh, hasn't been on the, on the, uh, the pick of the week pile since. Uh, back in 2019 with day day seven but uh i don't know maybe i think it was maybe iron man five i last uh i last picked uh christopher cantwell's standout uh run on uh on the the the, the iron avenger but uh my my uh my choice here is is, is iron man nine by christopher cantwell and Cafu on art it's continuing Cantwell's phenomenal run on Iron Man in an issue that focuses totally on the the background and drives of the villain Michael Korvac, who's a classic Avengers villain and the antagonist of Cantwell's run. That name sounds familiar. Was that something to do with? Was there a Marvel event at one point, the Korvac saga, something like that? Yeah, yeah, that's the one. Korvac saga uh, ran from. Oh, let me see. Was it? It was. 
I think thinking about my thinking about my I think it was uh, back in nineteen seventy eight it was Avengers one six seven the one seven seven so it was a lot of a lot of time ago and Korvac was a computer technician on in an alternate universe Earth so it was Earth six nine one and and in that universe the soul system or our uh, our solar system and all of its colonies are conquered by the the alien Badoon race. Mm-hmm. And Korvac is a is a bit of a collaborator and a traitor to the human race, and he's caught asleep in a machine while he's working. The bad Badoon punish him by grafting his upper body to a machine and making him into a cyborg. And then there's a, there's a whole lot of uh, cosmic stuff that goes on. He was used in the Avengers and in Doctor Strange, and uh, eventually, during the Korvac saga storyline, Korvac flees across space and time to our universe, and upon arrival, he discovers. The space station of Galactus, and uh, he's he's attempting to download the knowledge of Galactus from the station into his own system, and is imbued with Silver Surfer's power. Cosmic becomes really godlike, recreates himself in a perfect human human form, and poses as a human called Michael. Travels to Earth, intent on reshaping it into Utopia. He's pursued by the Guardians of the Galaxy, who join forces with the Avengers to to stop him. Um, and, and that is effectively the Corvax the saga. They, they track him to uh, Forest Hills and Queens, which is also where uh, where Aunt May lives, and uh, everybody descends on him, and it, it goes from there. So that's that was the original the original Corvax saga. But this sort of this sort of picks up on that. There's there are you do see you know Cafu's interpretations of scenes of the self-serving treacherous Corvax being cut apart, disassembled by his Badoon masters in the alternate past, and you almost you almost empathise with them, you know. Those that that say that's back to that cuts back to you know giant sized defenders in nineteen seventy five, and then there's scenes of the Avengers confronting Korvac and and Forest Hills from nineteen seventy eight, you know. But this story, uh, you'll be really interested in this. Lays down picks up on threads that were laid down in. Chip Zdarsky's run on none other than Invaders, which uh, I know you're a huge fan of. I see your latest tactic to get me to read Iron Man. Okay, I'm listening. <laughs> I'm listening. Yeah, so I don't know if you remember, but in Invaders 7, uh, Jim Hammond, was his body was destroyed by Namor. Mm-hmm. And uh, Tony Stark replaced Jim's destroyed android body with a, with a clunkier android suit of armor uh, that was more akin to sort of Iron Man, and it just you know, it, it it really threw Hammond off and 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 really affected his his mentality, you know, and, and that. But but yeah, so this in this story, you know, it, it's nearly a, a break. We're really focusing on Korvac and the exploration of him and this new sensation of self doubt that is driving him. His mission now is to get to Galactus's ship, so you can see it's calling back to his original origin. So he wants to get back to Tattoo to ta- Tattoo. Uh, which is Galactus's world ship to, to, to download the, the power, become become a cosmically powered god to create a utopia on Earth. But, you know, so so that's that, that's where he's at. And what he does, he, he this self-doubt is driving him to wonder whether or not he's ever going to have people who believe in him out of, you know, agreement rather than fear, as his, his lackeys are, are currently doing, you know. But so in doing so, he locates Jim Hammond, who is hiding out on this this moon, and uh, you know he's trying to convince Jim, the original Human Torch, to to come round to his way of thinking. And in doing so, he 
he recreates Jim's original body and, 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 and puts him back into that. And he also tries to download his, his plan into Jim's mind. And, you know, even in doing this, he's unable to to convince the original android Human Torch, his, you know, who he nearly sees as a brother because we said, you know, Korvac is, is an android, he's a, he's a cyborg. He's unable to convince, you know, Jim, you know, Jim's one of the original Marvel heroes, like. He's he's one of the, the he's the, the one of the all winners squad and and one of the original invaders. He's so he's unable to convince his his supposed brother of his cause and Corvac then forces the controller to shut Jim down and, and make a weapon of him. Um, so it's just it's a really great just exploration of the villain, you know. And and meanwhile, I mean, we'll we'll get back to the to the other D list heroes that that Iron Man has. Has employed and, and what's happened to Iron Man, I guess, next issue. But this is all just, you know, the the, the scenes that were redescribed from Defenders and, and and Avengers back in 1975 and 1978, beautifully re-rendered by by Cafu, and the whole thing just looks beautiful. I I cannot understate, overstate how great this book is. You know, it's just it's a fantastic book. You you're gonna have to you're gonna have to read it. And uh, I don't know, this is. This is issue nine. I feel like we're we're heading towards the closing of an arc, at least at issue twelve. I don't know if that's going to be the full length of the run or mm-hmm. if we're gonna we're gonna push on here. But uh, but yeah, I think there, there there's going to certainly be two really great, uh, really great trade paperbacks out of this story. But it's it's something else, Alan. It looks great. It's it's beautifully written. Christopher Cantwell is one of Marvel's best. Nice. Well, yeah, I mean, if it hits 12 issues, you're talking a couple of trades or a, or a rather nice hardcover as well. I mean, Iron Man hasn't really had a long run for a while. I mean, there was the Tony Stark Iron Man by Dan Slott. That was only 20-something issues, I think. You had Infamous Iron Man. You had International Iron Man. You had, they've, they've sort of played around with it quite a bit. So suffice to say, you'd be more than happy to see this continue for a, a yep. decent amount of time. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I think I think Cantwell has has done a fantastic job of, of reimagining Iron Man. You know, in this one issue, when you've got callbacks to 1975, 1978, and Chip Zdarsky's, Chip Zdarsky's Invaders run, I mean, what else can you do? Like that's someone doing their research right there. So it is. But <laughs> uh, yeah, there, you never know that there there is a uh, pack in the store, I believe, which is issues one to six, all first prints, just just sitting there saying read me read me you know mostly in your voice but yeah i mean you you've, you haven't steered me wrong so far so you never know i might just have to finally just give in and indulge we shall see uh but yeah that's keith's pick for this week which is iron man number nine so that's christopher Campwell and Cafu on that one so yeah that brings an end then to our review then of the 9th of june 2021 releases we'll finish off as we always do with a little look ahead to the next new comic book day which is the 16th of june so three picks as always just uh, the ones we're most looking forward to uh for me i have two dc and one indie this week oh, marvel really is just struggling with me i'm gonna have to do something about that but my titles this week uh first of all the f- is a graphic novel which is deceased hope at world's end this is a hardcover graphic novel uh written by tom taylor with art by dustin wayne renato guedes and marco felia and the reason i'm looking forward to this is because this was a originally a digital only series so deceased is a is the great um essentially dc zombies for lack of a better term done by tom taylor 
It's had three releases so far with Deceased, Deceased Unkillables, and Deceased Dead Planet. So as I say, this one was originally only available digitally, but this expands the world of that original Deceased series by filling in that story's time jump and focusing on characters including Superman, Wonder Woman, Martian Manhunter, Stephanie Brown, Wally West, and Jimmy Olsen. In Deceased Hope at World's End, the anti-life equation has infected over a billion people on Earth. Heroes and villains have fallen. In the immediate aftermath of the destruction of Metropolis, Superman and Wonder Woman spearhead an effort to stem the tide of infection, preserve and protect survivors, and plan for what's next. In the Earth's darkest stars, heroes will bring hope the war for Earth has only just begun. So that collects uh, chapters 1 to 15 of Deceased Hope at World End. Uh, next up for me is The Many Deaths of Lila Star. We're reaching issue 3 of 5 of this. Uh, we've obviously been exceptionally complimentary of this series so far and it has certainly not let us down. This is written and created by Ram V and Felipe Andrade. More years have passed when Lila Star, the now immortal reincarnation of the Avatar of Death, once again crosses paths with the future creator of immortality. This time at a party where the young man will have a life-altering experience that will shape him for years to come. Will Lila change his path in this one night or the other way around? So looking forward to that. And then the final one, I'm just totally going to steal off Keith. And yeah, that is are. Nightwing <laughs> 81. So two Tom Taylor picks. <laughs> so Tom Taylor writing Nightwing at the moment is just a thing of absolute joy. Bruno Redondo mm. on art. And uh, I, I don't even need to sell you this one by giving you a blur because Nightwing is just incredible. Easily in the top three ti- top three titles DC are producing at the moment, if not the top two, whisper quietly, if not the best. <laughs> what about yourself? What are your three to look forward to? Uh, so I'm looking forward to Planet Size X Men by uh, Jerry Duggan and Pepe Larraz, who was of course the artist on uh, House of X. Jerry Duggan is uh, he is uh, directing the Hellfire Gala, which has been pretty phenomenal uh, so far, I have to say. Uh, and he's obviously going to take over X Men with uh, with number one in in future. But the Hellfire Gala rages on. Bigger things are afoot, uh, a world away. Make no mistake, Jerry Duggan teams up with superstar artist Pepe Larraz. It is absolutely the most important issue of the month, as you surmised, Alan. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I I remember seeing an ad for it, which was fifty years ago. X Men changed the world. Fifty years later, this will change the universe. Mm. Do like a bit of hyperbole. Yeah, it's 44 pages, and uh, I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, you stole from me, and now I shall steal it from you. Uh, Touche. I'm forward to uh, Radiant Black number five from uh, Image by Kyle Higgins. Um, and uh, it is Eduardo Vergato on it, and Marcello Costa, and uh, Natalia Marquez, and Becca Carey uh, providing art. So this is the end of the first arc of Radiant Black, uh, especially after the big uh, cliffhanger last last issue. Yeah. Radiant Red is still out there. He needs to be stopped before anyone else gets hurt. But after the events of last issue left uh, Lockport and the world reeling, is Radiant Black up to the task? And will he be in this fight alone? Looking forward to Radiant Black. And then lastly, from our, uh, our buddies, Rory McCanville, Declan Shelby, and artist Joe Palmer, we have Time for Time, Time Before Time, number two from Image. After barely escaping the syndicate alive, Tatsu must evade enemies old and new, all the while trying not to kill his new time traveling companion. Who is Nadia Wells and what does she want with a time machine? Excellent. Time Before Time, number two. First issue was fantastic. 
I mean, the, these guys really did hype it up when they said it was Looper meets Saga. Again, putting yourself under pressure there, lads. But delivering so far, so looking forward to yeah, number two. Yeah, and if you're interested in a little little more of that, uh, go back and listen to our last interview with uh, Rory McConville and Declan Shelby all about Time Before Time. Spoiler free, of course, unlike this spoiler, um, unlike this podcast, which is spoiler filled. So okay. there you go. So, yeah, that is going to do it for us this week. Uh, we are going to look forward to seeing you in store this week. New releases hitting the racks this Wednesday. All pull lists are ready to go. Uh, and as ever, any titles appeal to you from this week's podcast. Again, we're recording sort of a, a week or two down the line, but we'll always be able to source those back issues for you. So do get in touch if anything really stood out to you here. P.S. You really, really want six sidekicks of Trigger King. <laughs> anyway, that's going to do it for us. Uh, a pleasure as always chatting with you, Mr. Miller. Uh, and you, sir. I, I will look forward to seeing you in store tomorrow uh, because it's not a new comic book day without a little bit of Miller. So, <laughs> Yeah, well, you, you, you won't be disappointed. <laughs> Cheers for that as always. Thanks for listening, guys, and I uh, hope you enjoyed this, and we'll look forward to seeing you soon. Good night. Good night.